It was a chilling moment in the interrogation room when a terrorist had been captured after killing many lives. The questioning went on about how and why. And it appeared evident that there was no remorse in this killer, no sense of shame. To which the interrogator said, have you no conscience? And the response was this. I did what my God ordained to be done. My conscience is clear. Now just because you say you have a clear conscience does not mean that you are truly forgiven. To say that your conscience is at rest does not mean that you are right with God. Conscience is a very interesting thing, isn't it? According to John chapter 1, Jesus is the light that comes into the world who lights every individual, and I think that's a reference to conscience. It's the fact that God has placed in the soul that he's created this arbiter, as it were. Some say that conscience is the moral compass of the soul, and it points you toward north, and that's a good image. I like the fact that the umpire, or the, the conscience is the umpire of the soul, tells you when you're safe and tells you when you're out. But the problem with a conscience is that it can be defiled. And once defiled, becomes ineffective. There are overactive consciences that pull people through life in a deplorable way where they are without peace, always troubled within, always churning in the soul. But the place that God wants us to be, as we read from Romans chapter 5, is to be right with God so that we have peace with God means that our conscience is clear. And that's the subject of Hebrews chapter 9. Let me invite you to this wonderful book called Hebrews, written to Hebrew Christians who are about ready to go back to Judaism after having turned to Christ for salvation. The persecution was hard. Perhaps the derogatory comments from their friends. I'm convinced that many of these were former priests. And we read about in the book of Acts that many of the priests came to faith in Christ. But perhaps some were now wanting to go back because of the comforts as they saw them in Judaism and a temple that they could see right around the corner downtown and offerings that they could touch and a priest that they could speak to. Well, the persecution was too hard and they wanted to go back. So the writer... Whoever this writer is, is urging these once believers in Christ, and he's, he's convinced many are still true believers in Christ, don't go back. Worst move you'll ever make, because Jesus is better than everything. 
He's better than the prophets, Old Testament prophets, chapter 1. He's better than the angels of heaven. He's better than Aaron, who was the first high priest. He's better than the Levitical system from the tribe of Levi. He is a tribe like Melchizedek. He's better than the sacrifices that are offered. He is indeed the author and completer of our faith, and he is God come in the flesh to reject him is to reject everything. Jesus is superior to all. Now we come to Hebrews chapter 9, and this is the section that many people feel is the heart of the entire epistle. From chapter 9 verse 1 into chapter 10 about verse 18, where the whole discussion now focuses so much on the redemption that Christ has purchased for us. But he starts out in verse 1 by saying, Now the first covenant, or sometimes called the old covenant, had regulations. They had religious rules. They had the rules for worship. And they also had, in addition to this, an earthly sanctuary. So that's where we start out. An earthly sanctuary. One that's visible. One that can be touched. And the first covenant had two features. It had regulations, not only the offerings that were to be given, but those who were to offer the sacrifices. And it had this special place. The earthly sanctuary, the earthly, is sometimes called a tabernacle, and also called simply a tent. But it's that Old Testament dwelling place where God was. So first of all, the author of Hebrews wants to talk about the special place. And then he'll come back to the regulations in just a moment. This is like a guided tour through the tabernacle uh, that Moses created at the command of God. So we read in verse 2, a tabernacle, a tent was set up. In the first room, there was a lampstand. And the table with its consecrated bread. And this first room was called the holy place. Now, I had an idea of stepping all of this off for us. But the holy place, its dimensions basically were 15 feet wide and 30 feet long. There was a second room connected to it. And it was called the most holy place. We'll talk about that in a minute. And it was a perfect cube, 15 by 15 by 15. And in the most holy place, that's where God dwelled. But in the holy place, first room, this is where the priests would serve. And the first thing you notice is this lampstand. So you come in through a curtain. And as you would come in, on the left-hand side would be the lampstand. You know it as the Jewish menorah. The seven-candled candle opera, as it were, as you look at it. Very beautiful piece that was uh, created by some craftsmen in the Old Testament. And then on the right-hand side is the table of showbread. Called in verse 2, the table with the consecrated bread. Literally, it is the bread of the presence. I like that. The bread of the presence. Now, sometimes we think about the smells related to the offerings of the tabernacle, the altar, and they, they, think, they appear to us to be repugnant, horrible. 
animals being slain, blood flowing down the altar, sprinkled everywhere. I mean, that just the thought is obnoxious. But think of it this way. When they crucify the animals, they would roast them or barbecue them. I remember one time our guide in um, Israel said that the whole sacrifice was nothing more than just a barbecue. Well, it was something more than just a barbecue, but that concept really, really got me because the smells of this place must have been amazing. So not just repugnant, but if someone is walking by, they go, wow, that smells good. You ever been by a barbecue? And it draws you in. There was another smell here of fresh bread. Yes, there was a holy bakery. There was someone who was called to bake the bread out of the Levitical priests. And they were good at it. They were bakers. And they would bake this warm, fresh bread hot out of the oven. And the 12 loaves, one representing each tribe in Israel, would be changed every Sabbath day. Of course, only the priests could eat it. And they were the only ones that could eat the barbecue. So that makes it really hard when your neighbor's barbecuing and you can't have any of it. But the smells were amazing in this holy place. Verse 3 says, Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. That's the perfect cube, 15 by 15 by 15. And in that room, there was the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. Now, I read that, I can remember before, and I said, wait a minute, that's not right. This author of the Hebrews is wrong. Go back and read Exodus 25, when the whole tabernacle was laid out to Moses, and the altar of incense was in the first room, the holy place, not the second room, the holy of holies. This guy that I thought really knew Jewish history and Jewish worship has got it wrong. No, he doesn't. We've got to give the writers of Scripture a, a little more confidence than that. In no way is he going to write to Jewish readers and get that wrong. It'd be like writing, let's meet on the Sabbath day next Friday. I mean, you might as well forget calling yourself a Hebrew scholar. So what is it? His focus is on the Day of Atonement, as we're going to see when he talks about the high priest. The focus is on that one day of the year. And you know what happened on that one day of the year? The priest, the high priest, would take the coals from the altar of incense and go through the second curtain to the Holy of Holies and put it there. The incense cloud would cover up. By the way, there's another great smell, the potpourri of the incense. But the cloud would cover the priest from the very presence of God in the covenant or in the Ark of the Covenant. And on that one day, it was just as well as the altar of incense being on the inside because that's where the coals were taken. And so scholars say it was so vital, this burning of incense on the Day of Atonement, that the author automatically associates the altar of incense as being in the Holy of Holies. Because that's where the people want to go. Why? That's where the presence of God is. 
They want to be with their God. And Jeremiah said, I will be your God and you will be my people. That wonderful prophecy in chapter 31. But there was a stiff arm in their face when they came to worship at the old tabernacle. And everything said, you can't come in. You can't come in. You're an outsider. Have you ever been an outsider? You ever tried to go in some place where people told you you can't? And so the Old Testament worship constantly reminded them, yes, God had reached down to them, and here was a system, but the system still had difference, uh, distance. It, it still was temporary. It was imperfect. It wasn't complete. It didn't accomplish the job. When you went into the Holy of Holies, there was this gold-covered ark with three special objects, we're told. Verse 4, the ark contained the gold jar of manna. Now, if you're thinking about smells, that would be an interesting one. The manna would go rotten by the next day in the Old Testament, right? Don't save any for tomorrow unless you're saving it over the Sabbath day and then God miraculously allowed it to persevere for the next day. But it had an expiration date on it like tomorrow. Eat it now or it's bad. So I don't know if the manna in the gold jar had just hardened, whether they'd done something to it to preserve it or whether it smelled really bad. Uh, I doubt that. But there was manna there to remind them of God's provision. And there was Aaron's rod. They did the miracles with the rod, remember in Exodus? But it was the rod that budded, according to Numbers. Cut off a branch from a tree and set it down. And if it begins to flower a few days later, you've got something going on. But that never happens, except here. Showing the sole authority of the Levitical priesthood coming from Aaron and the life that God gives to the dead tree, to a nation that didn't exist. And then, of course, you have the two tablets of stone upon which are etched the Ten Commandments, the stone of Moses. By the time that this was written, actually by the time of Solomon, actually, only two things were left in the ark, the two tablets. The other things, by that time, we're gone. But then we read in verse 5, above the ark were, were the cherubim of glory. Fancy name for angels, special angels. And the word glory is capitalized not because of the glory of the cherubim, but the glory of the one they serve. These are the cherubim of the glorious God. The glory of the majesty they're above the ark. They are representing the presence of God. And they're bowing, looking down at the ark. And their wings are touching and beautifully crafted out of gold. So really everything in this tabernacle is covered with gold, made of wood, covered with gold. Except for one thing, it's the top of the ark. And that is solid gold. And you'll notice in verse 5, that above the ark are the cherubim of glory overshadowing the atonement cover. The atonement cover. 
The cover of the box, and the Hebrew word can mean cover, but because sometimes special words in Hebrew were only given in their consonants, another word can come out of that same, of those same three consonants, not just cover, but wipe away. <laughs> and so the, the top of the cover of the ark of God, solid gold, is the throne of God called the mercy seat. And the only other time atonement is used in the New Testament, this particular word, it's found in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And so this mercy seat, this lid of the ark, this atonement cover is very special. I love the term mercy seat. In that word, atonement is expiate. Expiation is to take away. In that word, atonement is propitiate. Propitiation is to satisfy. And our sins have been taken away, and the justice of God has been appeased. And there in God's throne is called the mercy seat. Oh, it doesn't get any better than that. That's where I want to go. I want to go into the presence of God to the mercy seat, but I can't. I can't get in. And the way is barred. You see, the temple standing at that time, the second temple, didn't have any of these articles in the Holy of Holies. They were all destroyed and taken away in 587 B.C. when the Babylonians destroyed the city of Jerusalem as well as the temple. Everything covered with gold was taken. And, and when the Romans conquered Jerusalem in 70 A.D., there wasn't much left in that temple either. In the holy place, there were some articles. They refabricated a lampstand and a table for showbread, an altar for incense, but there was no ark, there was no holy place. And when the Roman generals came in, they talked about the furniture and the holy place, but nothing in the most holy place. It was all gone. And so as the writers reminding them of this tabernacle that they were so familiar with from the days of Moses, not the one standing around the corner in downtown Jerusalem at that point in time, but the one made long ago, he talks about the priestly work. So you have the special place, the priestly work, verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this in the tabernacle, the priests entered regularly only into the outer room to carry on their ministry, to perform their priestly duties. Only in that first room, the outer room. Isn't it interesting? First room, second room, outer room, holy space, inner room. And the priests would enter constantly because their job was never done. And their priestly duties, they, they would uh, replace the incense because they always had to keep it burning. So they would put new incense in the altar of incense. They would make sure the lampstand was burning. It's more than a candlestick because it was lit by oil and wicks had to be changed and oil had to be added. And they would come in on the Sabbath day and replace the loaves of bread with freshly baked new loaves of bread. That was their job. 
But in contrast to the regular priest, verse 7 says, only the high priest entered the second room, the inner room. And he could only do that once a year. And he never could do it without blood. First for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, the sins that the people had committed in ignorance. Now, that's a whole nother study that would take us a long time. But in the Old Testament, there are sins of ignorance and sins of the high hand. And sometimes sacrifices were only found for the first. But the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The high priest would go in and perform his duties. But what's the purpose of recounting all this that you already know? Verse 8, the Holy Spirit is showing you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that this way into the most holy place, the second room, had not yet been opened. The way had not yet been revealed or disclosed. As long as the first tabernacle was functioning, there was no way to get in the holy place because only the high priest could go in. Great restrictions met every worshiper. Elaborate protections made the message clear. You can't get in to God. And as long as the first covenant is still going, Every time they brought sacrifices, oh, there was a sad situation. Oh, there was a sense maybe of forgiveness temporarily. But it said, the whole temple said, God's people are excluded from God's presence. All the promises of intimacy with Jehovah cannot yet be experienced. And verse 9 says, this is an illustration. The Greek word is parable. This is simply a story for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered are not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They failed and couldn't clear the heart of those who were coming to God. Unable to bring true inner peace, which was the intended goal. Unable to bring people into God's presence. The great failure of the old system is that the conscience could not be silenced. But would forever nag the worshiper. My sins aren't really gone. It is, isn't it interesting, verse 10? The old system... Only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. Remember, he talked about regulations in the first verse, and now he comes back to them again in the 10th verse. These are external regulations, applying until the time the new order comes. A new reformation until things get straightened out. So it's a good system, it's God's system, but it's a temporary system, and it's time to get rid of it because all of this is external, and my problem is internal. My problem is the sin of the heart, and all this old system can do is cover it for a period of time. But every year or every time I sacrifice, remind me you're a sinner, unforgiven. You're a sinner, unforgiven. My conscience says, you are apart from God. 
One time years ago, a man was preaching at a Bible conference by the name of Harry Rimmer. Some of you who have been around for a while might remember that name. And it was customary during those days for Bible conference speakers to wear all white. White coat, white shirt, actually a white suit, white pants, white socks, white shoes. I don't know why, but that's what they did. And one morning as he was preparing to speak that day, he was going to speak in the morning, and he went to breakfast and was having his breakfast and took a little grape juice and had some grape juice spill on his white coat. Oh, no is right. <laughs> and so someone came with talcum powder, that white powder, and applied it a little bit, and then another layer and another layer, doing the best they could to cover up that spot of grape juice. And it did a pretty good job. And then when he got up to speak, just before he did, they applied a couple more layers of talcum powder and he preached and no one knew, unless you were with him at breakfast, that he had a spot. And later on that day, he took his coat to the cleaners and let them expiate the stain to take it out and to take it away. The old covenant is like talcum powder. They covered the sin for a period of time, but soon it began to bleed away, and you could see the stain as real as it was, and the conscience would tell you, you are not forgiven. And some of you are living with a conscience that won't let go. Our real problem is internal. These worship regulations were external. We need something that changes our heart and cleanses our soul. And that the old covenant could not do. So if the conscience is the umpire of the soul, what happens when your conscience goes bad? You study the word conscience in the scripture, you will see that there's a thing called a weak conscience, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. That's someone who has an overactive conscience, and they're more concerned or conscientious about things. They make rules and laws into things that God never made into rules and laws. And the problem with these people with a weak conscience is they want to make sure you're following the rules too. So they've got a list of rules, and they're upset because they can't follow them. And if they, ain't, if they don't have any peace, you're not going to have peace either. And then you've got people with a, a corrupt conscience. Titus chapter 1, verse 15. A corrupt conscience is one that says no to the truth of Scripture. See, God planted this moral arbitrator in our heart, but then man sinned, and now the moral arbitrator doesn't work well. It's designed to tell us what is right and wrong, but it doesn't know what is right right or wrong. Only the Word can tell us what is right or wrong. But a corrupt conscience has put in a different standard than God's perfect righteousness and his holy character and his inspired word. And the conscience that is corrupt measures itself by that instead of by truth. And then you have something called a seared conscience. According to 1 Timothy chapter 4, a seared conscience is just what you expect. A branding iron put hot on the flesh will sear and make insensitive that piece of skin. And so those who continue to say no 
to God and reject his word have had their conscience seared as with a hot iron and are no longer able to discern right from wrong. You know, I think we have a lot of that in our world today. Be careful that you don't go down that same path of a weak conscience, a bad conscience, or worse, a corrupt conscience, or a seared conscience. How about a guilty conscience? That's Hebrews chapter 10. We'll get to that in a little bit. But this is what, this is what the Old Testament worshipers had. They still had a guilty conscience. Victor Hugo said that conscience is God present in man. And that's not a bad definition as far as it goes. I think I first heard about conscience in the 1950s from a movie I watched called Pinocchio with a little cricket who used to sing and always let your conscience be your guide. That's not bad counsel if your conscience is riveted to the truth of Scripture. And back in the 1950s, there was more of a biblical framework in our society than there is today. Always let your conscience be your guide. That's what the terrorist said to those who were interrogating him. My conscience is clear. Sophocles said there is no witness so terrible and no accuser so powerful as conscience which dwells within us. The voice of conscience might be delicate and easy to suppress, but it is also so clear and so persistent that it's difficult to mistake and impossible to ignore. And that was the problem these worshipers were having. The conscience constantly telling them something is wrong. Theologian Robert South said years ago, guilt upon the conscience is like rust upon iron. Both defile and consume. Gnawing and creeping into the substance. And at last, eating out the very heart of the substance. Be it metal or the soul. And that's the big problem with many of you today. I don't even know you, but I know in this group, many of you have this problem. You have a conscience that you cannot silence. And you've tried everything. First of all, you try to live a righteous life, but you can't live it perfectly. And so constantly, the accuser of the brethren is telling you, you fall short. Try harder. Become neurotic. That's what the conscience says. Keep working, keep working, keep working. You can do it. No, you can't. You can do it. No, you can't. And the battle goes on. But the Bible tells us that this conscience of ours needs to be riveted to truth. And then when it is, we have a clear conscience. Ogden Nash said, tongue-in-cheek, there is only one way to achieve happiness on this terrestrial ball, and that is to have either a clear conscience or none at all. A little bit of poetry in there. A clear conscience or none at all. I vote for the first. 
Because those who try to eliminate their conscience can't. It continues to speak. It's interesting. The apostle Paul said, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Because Paul knew that he could misread the conscience. It's the spirit of God that uses the conscience to work in the heart and the soul. John Trapp used to say that the conscience was the domestic chaplain. And William Grinnell, the sergeant sent by God to arrest the sinner. But what happens when you're religious and your conscience has not been silenced? It's troubled. It's guilty. Romans chapter 2 verse 15 While on this side accusing me and on this side excusing me, my conscience never seems to be satisfied. Well, here's the answer. The answer is found in Christ. Just quickly look at verse 11. When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. So now you have the heavenly scene as opposed to the earthly scene. The superior place as opposed to merely a special place. He went through the greater, more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not not enter by means of the blood of goats or calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all, with his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption for us. In the old system, forgiveness was never obtained. But in the new system, it is completed. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. Let's try that again and memorize one verse this morning. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. The term is amazing. Paid in full. Now we can sing, gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Buried in the depths of the deepest sea. Because of the mercy seat. And the blood sprinkled upon it. Eternal redemption. The tabernacle on earth was constructed by men at the generosity of many Jews who gave the materials that were used to construct the place. And skilled people used their gifts to build it, but it was man-made and needed repair. It could only be in one place. It was only for one people. It had limitations. It was inferior. But now this greater tabernacle is perfect. And God is in the presence. And there's also a super, superior sacrifice. Verse 13, the blood of bulls, goats, ashes of a heifer sprinkled on the altar. Those are ceremonies that cleanse temporarily those who come. They're outwardly clean, verse 13. But how much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, unblemished to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works, works that end in death, works that are useless like death, 
Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The life of the flesh is in the blood, Leviticus 17, 11. And Jesus gave his life blood to purge our sins. And as William Grinnell said, peace of conscience is nothing more but the echo of pardoning mercy. Now we can say I have a free conscience. Why? Because you live good? No. Why? Because you have no moral standard? No. My conscience is clear because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I am forever his child. In 1811, which probably wasn't much more than a decade after taxes were introduced to America, there was someone who sent an anonymous $5 bill to Washington, D.C. because they had defrauded the government of their taxes. Pretty interesting when you defraud the government and you only owe them $5. (laughs) And from that point on, the U.S. government, the U.S. Treasury started and operates something called a conscience fund. And over the years, millions have come in from guilt-ridden people who've defrauded the government. Well, my friend, there is a better conscience fund at the cross than you will find anywhere else. I give my sin to Jesus, and he washes me white as snow. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence, I now draw nigh. With confidence, I now draw nigh into the Holy of Holies. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, to the soul with a guilty conscience this morning, let them see there is no hope outside of the cross and no Savior like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.